Well, welcome again to all of you, uh, church family, friends. Welcome to our online guests, whatever city, state, or country you might be watching from. And uh, welcome all moms. Happy Mother's Day to all you ladies. It's so uh, good to have all of you guys here celebrating uh, with each other. You know, one of the great things about moms is the advice. It's the lessons uh, that they teach us. The old phrase, mother knows best. And advice and lessons are a sampling of the gift of wisdom that God allows for us to help one another, especially the next generation. And so earlier this week, I just threw out there online, I said, hey, just give me some samples of advice or lessons you've learned from your moms. And pretty quick, that feed started just blowing up. People had a lot to say about that. You know, Proverbs 1.8 says, uh, hear your father's instruction and not forsake your mother's teaching. And so uh, what were some of the advice, what were some of the lessons that stood out uh, to some of the folks that responded? Well, I'll I'll share just a small list. I think I'll actually blog, just put together a little blog uh, because of all the, I think there's like 70 responses and a lot of them are are very insightful. Some of them are humorous. Um, This should be helpful to you. You can go online and look at those later. But uh, here's here's just some of the advice that people responded with. In the first few, I'm going to see if you can help me by filling in the blank. Help, help me uh, finish them off, because I think we all heard a lot of these from our moms. If you can't say anything nice, then... That's right. Uh, two wrongs don't make a... Right, you guys have been well-trained. This is good. Um, don't cry over... I don't, I don't know if I ever did that, <laughs> but that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, how about this one? You can do anything you set your... Mine too. Man, that positive encouragement that moms and dads want to give us. Here's some of the other ones. Uh, Just uh, how to be selfless as a mom. That was one big lesson that stood out to someone. Staying away from credit card debt. Uh, How to tithe, be faithful to God. How to forgive. How to be an encourager in the day. Work before you play. I thought that was neat. Uh, Here's one. If you're going to laugh about it in 10 years, you might as well laugh about it now. You know, I thought that was, that's pretty good. Um, Serving others is more important than serving yourself. One well-known person said, my mama told me that life is like a box of chocolates. Um, So those were some of the responses that we had. Well, a lot of us, we didn't just learn from the words of our parents, but we actually learned a lot from what we saw them do in life, from their actions. I know that was true for me. Uh, Mom, if you're watching, happy Mother's Day. I love you. Um, But for my mom, just watching her live her life. I, I might not remember all the things she said, but I just remember her life and what she did. And someone who, who lost her father as a young adult, who lost her brother later in life in a tragic accident, has had a lot of death, uh, distance in family, who was a single mom with me for a little bit in her young adult life, uh, who's navigated you know, two divorces that weren't good. And, and just watching all these things, I learned perseverance from my mom. Mom taught me a lot about perseverance as I learned that lesson. So, moms, thank you for the advice. Thank you for the lessons that we have learned that you have passed on. Now, even more important in our lives than the lessons we've learned from our parents are the lessons that we learn and that we live out that are provided from the Lord, even more so. And the Lord has given us instruction. He's given us commands. He's given us advice and lessons, if you will, in his word. And I don't know about you, but I find it extremely comforting that we have an unchanging God in a very unpredictable world. Amen? We have an unchanging God who loves us, provides us with his word, his spirit in this world that's so unpredictable and so uncertain. And so as we continue in uh, our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're really going to see a tone change. Uh, If you've been with us, 
And you've, you've spent the last uh, six chapters or so listening to this person that God has instructing. This, this person is known as the Koheleth. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that means one who calls a gathering or an assembly. And the teacher of the Koheleth, who many people uh, believe was the ancient king Solomon of Israel, the Koheleth has been really saying, I'm looking at life under the sun. And as I look at life under the sun, here's all the things I see. And he's talking about some of the vanity and some of the meaningless nature and some of the uh, just... Uh, crazy things that take place on earth. And, and he's talking about it and saying that despite all that, we need to eat, drink, marry, and love God, be in awe of God, don't, don't leave God. But we see a neat thing happen in chapter 7. There's a tone change. And now instead of just describing life under the sun, now we start to say, here's some lessons about life under the sun. Here's some advice. Here's some things I've learned. Here's some things I want to pass on to you and want you guys to consider and to think through. And so as we crack open Ecclesiastes, we're really going to look at some of these lessons that are given to us by the Lord through this author. Now, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 7 and 8 on your own. There's a lot there. But of all the lessons found in those two chapters, I just want to focus on three with you this morning. Just three lessons that the Lord shares with us. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come here. Lord, uh, we, we think about the, 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 the fact that we, we woke up in our homes, our apartments, we, we, we're able to shower and get cleaned up and have food and get dressed and get into a vehicle that's insured and fueled up and drive down uh, roads and come to a place like this. Lord, we're so uh, blessed. Lord, help us, not, uh, be, help us not be ungrateful for just all that we've already experienced today. And Lord, the fact that we can just open up your word right now without fear of persecution or punishment and learn from you is such a joy. So God, we pray that this time will be beneficial to us, that it will glorify you. Thank you for all the moms in this room, Lord. Uh, be with those who are hurting because of Mother's Day today. Also be with those who are experiencing joy because of Mother's Day today. So Father, teach us uh, a few lessons from this part of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, Ecclesiastes 7. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7. Open up your Bibles, your Bible apps. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free on your way out. Stop by the info center. But let's just look at the first four verses. I'm just going to focus on three lessons, like I said. The first one we see in these first few verses of Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. That's kind of like a freebie with the next lesson that's really in part. Hey, your name, your reputation is very important. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. Then we go, what? <laughs> Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What on earth is he talking about? Well, here's the first lesson we see, uh, one of many in these chapters, is that sorrow is a better teacher than laughter. Sorrow is actually a better teacher than laughter. Sorrow teaches you more than laughter. This verse is puzzling at first glance. He's saying it's better to be at a funeral than a party. He's saying the day of death is better than the day of birth, and the morning is better than feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for coming. Hope your moms are encouraged. Go home and have a nice lunch. No, this is, this is puzzling. Why is he saying this? Don't miss this. He's not saying that feasting and birth and joy, you know, the word mirth there, is bad. He's not saying that. 
On contrary, we know that joy and feasting and all those things are good and they're gifts of God. But what he's saying is that sorrow is better than laughter and the funeral better than the party because sorrow is a better teacher. I just want you to think about that for a second. What do we typically do at the birth of a child? When we're in the hospital, the birth of a child, it's exciting, it's joy, it's, you know, it's this is a beautiful moment, lots of presents, lots of gifts, all these adorable kids. We love that. But um, what do you really learn in that moment? Like what deep reflection do we typically do in that moment? We, we, we don't really do much of that. There's sometimes a few minutes of awe, like, wow, look at this crazy little ch- tiny child, and you think about how awesome God is maybe, and sometimes that's the extent of that. But think about the funeral. Think about when loss and grief come into our life. Death is real. Loss is a constant. Sometimes it just feels like it comes in waves, right? Like, just, man, you know, my, my child moved out, and then, you know, maybe I lost my job, and then this loved one is sick, and this loved one died. And loss, we're very sensitive to loss. But there's lessons that come with it. And as much as laughter is a gift, sorrow also is a gift. Sorrow is a gift. In our times of sorrow, we find ourselves appreciating and reflecting on life at a different level, at a different depth. So think about the day of death versus the day of birth. When, when unfortunately, there's, there's the tragedy situations where a little one might pass away. I want you to think about miscarriages. Think about little ones that have passed away. Why is that so painful and tragic to us? Because not only is there just this death of an innocence, if you will, we, we grieve all that could have been, right? It's like, man, all that they could, like, I'll never have this moment and this moment and this moment. And as that unfolds in your mind, it's like, there's so much to grieve that could have happened. It's very grievous. But is it the same type of grief that we feel when our 95-year-old grandparent passes away? It's usually not. Usually when someone who's older in life passes away, we grieve them, we miss them, but we go, what a full life they had. What a, what, a, what a full life that this person experienced. In fact, I heard another uh, pastor who's actually started a document on his computer. It's just a document that every now and then he just opens up and adds to. I'm thinking, maybe I'll do this. This is kind of a good idea. And the title of the document is Don't Cry For Me. He's leaving something behind for his family and friends. And every time he thinks of or experiences something amazing, he writes, don't cry for me because. And so don't cry for me because I've seen amazing sunrises. Don't cry for me because I've seen amazing sunsets. Don't cry for me because I've climbed mountains. Don't cry for me because I've, uh, I was married to the most amazing woman ever. Don't, don't cry for me because I tasted the best steak that just melted my face off. You know, like, there's just a list of all these blessings. And so when we, when we look at the end of life, we look back and we, we see this full life. It's not the same type of grief, but we start to enter into a place of reflection. See, the house of mourning versus the house of feasting means that at a party, we're all having a good time, but no one's reflecting on their lives, assessing where they need to make changes, what do they need to do to have course corrections, what relationships need attention. We don't typically do that in the moments of feasting and parties, but during loss, it says here, the living lay it to heart. It says that the heart of the wise is in the house of where? Mourning, in mourning. Because it's there, we reflect, we evaluate, we make course corrections, we look at our lives, what relationships are damaged that need repair? What empty pursuit am I chasing? What choices in my behavior is bringing destruction and difficulty into my life and the life of the people I love? Am I living for my purpose? Am I finding joy? Uh, What am I grateful for? 
If, if I were to die today, do I know I'm going to go to heaven? If I were to see Jesus face to face, would he say to me, well done, good and faithful service? Am I living to glorify God? Am I living to glorify self? Like These are the types of questions that sometimes come to us when we're staring at a casket, staring at a headstone, or sitting in the family room after the service playing with a bunch of pasta on a plate, just thinking. Sorrow is a better teacher than laughter is. You know, Psalm 90.12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so when we think about grief and we think about loss, when we think about death, when we think about mourning, it should lead us to a place where we start to reflect. Now here's the thing, the really wise person won't wait to the place of mourning, <laughs> but that definitely is waiting for us. That moment of instruction and reflection is there in the house of mourning, even for Mother's Day. Look, Mother's Day can be very tough for some folks. Some of you are estranged with your moms, or maybe you're estranged with your children. Maybe you've lost your mom. Maybe your mom is sick. Uh, maybe you have a difficult you know, scenario with, with your mom's situation. Maybe you're struggling with infertility, or you've lost children. Maybe you were hesitant to come here today. But you know what? This is a place where even there, there's lessons to learn. And one of them is just God knows, and God cares, and he loves you, and he's going to work it somehow to teach you something very important about who he is and what he wants you to experience. And so we have this unchanging God who gives us both joy and sorrow, and they're both gifts, and we live in this uncertain world where he teaches us certain things that sorrow will only teach us. I want to say that again. There are certain things we will only learn through sorrow. So therefore, it's not a welcomed gift, but it's a gift. In fact, just think through this question. uh, What has God taught you in times of grief? Like if you were just to fill out the blank, now you can take your notes now and say, I'm just going to write down, what has God taught me through grief? What has he taught you about himself? What's he taught you about life? What's he taught you about yourself? And these things are good reflections. So one of the big lessons we see in this chapter is that sorrow teaches you more than laughter. It's a tough one, but it's an important one. But the second lesson we see here, and I, I would put all this under a banner of this unchanging God who's giving us these lessons in a very uncertain world. Lesson two is that God's work is constant, mysterious, and good. God's work is constant, mysterious, and good. The teacher watched people work and play, right? This Koheleth watched people work and play, live and die, and, he's, and he considered God's work in it all. Look at chapter 7 again with me. Look at verses 13 and 14. These are probably my two favorite verses in chapter 7 and 8 combined. In Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 to 14, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after them. God has allowed both good and bad experiences, prosperity and adversity. Both have value. Both shape us. We have no idea what's next, right? Will tomorrow be a day of prosperity for you? Will tomorrow be a day of adversity for you? No, no. Will the next hour be adversity or prosperity? We don't know. We have plans, we have hopes, we have inclinations, but really, we don't know, right? We have no idea what the next hour, you know, day, week, month, year holds for us. And we experience both prosperity and joy and health and good things, and we experience difficulty and adversity, and they both have value, and they both are things that God allows to shape us. And so in the moments when we have the prosperity We need to be thankful and joyful, we see here. In the moments of adversity, we need to be reminded God still can use it. 
God still can use us. Now, consider here, he says, consider God's work. He doesn't say understand God's work. He says, when you look at prosperity and you look at adversity, he goes, consider it. Consider the work of God. He doesn't say understand it. Because when you try to understand it, it gets sideways. If you were to turn forward to Ecclesiastes 8, he revisits the sentiment in verses 16 through 17 of chapter 8. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, right? He's putting his heart in a place to learn wisdom. And I see the business that's done on the earth. This is that life under the sun. How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so it's a comfort to know that God has set things in motion, God has fixed things, but it's also vexing, isn't it? It's vexing that God has set things in place, certain parts of his will, and we look at what appears to be crooked to us, death, discomfort, and uh, anything else that seems unpleasant or unwanted in our life. And we look at it and we just go, Lord, we want comfort. It's it's just funny. We we are creatures of entitlement. I don't know where that came from, but we are. We are creatures where we have expectations of others and God. And, And when we try to apply those expectations and those entitlements to God, it just gets sideways. God's going, you don't understand the way I work. My ways are higher than your ways. And so we have to kind of come to a place of surrender because in reality, Right now, all of us, we all have something in our life we wish we didn't have. Right now, all of us, there are things in our life that we wish we had, right? And so we can, we can, we can spend the, all of our time trying to figure out why. God, why do I have this thing that I don't want? And God, why don't I have this thing that I want? And as we talked about this last week, why is not a great question. There's times to ask why. It's not a bad question. But sometimes why gets you stuck. A lot of times it's better to ask what. God, what do you want me to learn through this prosperity, generosity, how quick it comes, how quick it goes, you know, your provision in my life. God, what do you want me to learn through this adversity? Do you, what do you want me to learn about your faithfulness? What do you want me to learn about who you are, your character, your nature? What do you want me to learn about myself? Like, that's really a, a more helpful question. And he's basically saying here, this teacher, as he's looking at all these things, is you're going to have to trust God and what he's fixed. That what he's bent, you're not going to unbend. And it's futile to labor and trying to figure it out. Like to just try to figure out why God does what God does is a futile attempt. A lot of times we know we're probably way off base. And so the teacher sees that God works. He sees that that work is fixed and that man cannot unbend what God has bent. And God has purpose for his work, although we don't often know it. And I just want to stop here for a minute and say, when we stop and consider God's work, because he says it's considered the work of God, when you consider the work of God, it's constant, it's mysterious, and it's good. And part of that being good is that it's redemptive. Everyone say redemptive. This is a huge part of understanding how our God works. God is a redeemer. He rescues. He takes what's broken and brings good things out of it. That's crazy. It's crazy that God can take something that's broken and make something beautiful out of it. And that's part of his constant, mysterious, good work. I want to give you an example. I've talked about this before, but I, I just want to bring it back because it was what came to my mind this last couple of weeks when I was studying. I want, to, I want to talk about our family. For those of you who don't know our story, my wife and I, we've been married 23 years, but uh, we've struggled through infertility our whole marriage. Now, we have three amazing, beautiful children. 
Now, to, to the person who doesn't think deep enough, what happens is they go, oh, your, God grew your family through adoption, so infertility was healed. No, no, no. God never healed our infertility. We're still 23 years married, still infertile. For whatever reason, we can't have kids biologically, but what's happened is that God allowed us to grow our family through adoption, which has been beautiful. God didn't heal our infertility. He redeemed it. He brought redemption through adoption. Adoption didn't heal infertility. Adoption was redemption of infertility. And so it redeemed our desire to be parents. It redeemed our understanding of understanding God as an adoptive father into our life. When, when my wife sits down as a woman who, who can't bear children and sits down with a woman who's abortion-minded at a pregnancy center and, and does sonograms and listens to her story. Like this last week, she had a woman come in and the woman says, I had an abortion. It hurt. It was two years ago. I'm still in pain emotionally. I'm still in counseling, so I don't want to do that again. But I know I'm not in a place to raise a child. I don't know what to do. Guess what God did? He put my wife right in the right spot at the right time for the right person in the right moment to redeem that conversation. And that young lady walked out of there with information on adopting children that she might not have considered. There's, God has taken the situation in her life. He didn't fix it. He redeemed it. And that, that's the constant, mysterious, good work of our Father. I want you to think about your life. What in your life maybe isn't fixed? You might still consider it broken in a sense or in disrepair, but and maybe God didn't fix it or heal it, but instead what he's done is he's redeemed it. He's used it for good somehow. He's taught you lessons through it. And if you're struggling with this concept, let me take it one step further. Think about the cross. The cross is a Roman wooden instrument of torture and execution, right? Like, think about how funny it is in Christianity. We wear, like, you know, we wear crosses, and you know, we put crosses on our body and put crosses on our car and stuff like that. You just put an instrument of torture and execution on your body. It's not typical, right? Like, hey, man, someone give me like a gallows. I want to wear it, you know? Can I get like an like a, you know, electric chair or you know, something? We don't do that, but why would we do that? Because God took an old, wooden, ugly instrument, and he redeemed it. He made something beautiful out of it. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute for our sins, he took that ugly piece of wood and made it something beautiful. Now we can have access to God. We can have forgiveness of sins. We, we look to the cross as a symbol of hope and a reminder of what God's done. What are other ways God has taken something broken in your life, difficult in your life? Even now, some of you are I'm in a, I'm in a tough place now. Well, you, you have two different ways you can ask, where is God in that moment? You can say, where's God? Where's God in the situation? It's hard. Or you can say, hmm, where's God at? Where's God? Where do I see his fingerprints? Where do I see him working? What's he trying to redeem through this brokenness? And so these are lessons that God is teaching us through. He's teaching us all these things. Man, sorrow, sorrow is a better teacher than laughter. And we go, I don't like that. But God's going, that's the way I've bent it. <laughs> okay, well, um, here's the deal. Life's full of adversity and life's full of prosperity. H how do I deal with that? That's the way I've bent it. They both will bring instruction in your life. My work is constant. My work is a mysterious. My work is good. And so we need to learn to look for God's work, but understand it's still mysterious, and we have to surrender to it. The third lesson we see here. It's a little bit interesting. It's don't be super righteous or don't be super wicked. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Look at Ecclesiastes 7 again. 
Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. In my vain life, the teacher says, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God should come out from both of them. The teacher is saying, I've seen it all. I've seen good people get bad. I've seen bad people get good. Still, we need to fear God. We need to have awe of God. And another lesson I've learned on top of that, he says, in this uncertain, unpredictable, uh, seemingly unfair life, is don't be overly righteous, meaning self-righteous, right? When you're, if you're overly righteous, you're being self-righteous. You're being super righteous. And, and that kind of righteousness is a wrong. There, there is a righteousness that's wrong. And the righteousness that's wrong is when we see ourselves as right. We see ourselves right over others. We see ourselves right as God. And what spiritual self-righteousness looks like is, I'm not going to need God because I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to obey laws. I'm going to obey commandments. I'm going to do good works. And through my good works, my good laws, I will build my way to God. He doesn't have to do anything. Well, that's not going to do you any good because works is not how we get to God, right? It's through relationship. And so you don't want to be overly righteous, so self-righteous, you don't see. That was a big mistake. Jesus had his most harsh words. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, Jesus spoke the most harsh to people who were self-righteous. They saw themselves as super righteous, right? Just big S right here, SR, super righteous. You know, they thought they had it all, all done. God's saying, no, don't, don't do that. And this is a crazy notion, by the way, the fact that we can even be righteous on our own. I hope you guys know that's crazy. Do we know how bad we are? Like, do we, I'm going to call some of your mamas. We're going to get some testimony on site right here. I mean, do we know how bad we are? He continues this. I mean, if you look at chapter 7, verse 20, he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and ever sins. You look at 29. See, this alone I found that God makes man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Man, we're just, we just default to sin. We, we default, default to unrighteousness. We see this in Scripture in many places. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord said that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He's like, oh, that's great. We see in Romans 3-23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the reason that some of us fall into this mindset of, of thinking we're super righteous is we think the grading scale is person to person. That God's going to look at how you act compared to how other people act and then make a judgment call. Remember, that's been eradicated. The, the standard is God. Holy, perfect, awesome God. When we all compare to him, we all fall short. That's what Romans 3.23 means. We've all fallen short. And so because of that, we, we've got no leg to stand on if we're trying to be righteous through good works and certain prayers and spiritual rituals and all these kinds of things. We don't have it in us. We're a mess. We all fall short. But at the same time, you don't go to the other extreme and just say, well, I'm wicked. Let's just run with it. I'm going to be super wicked, you know? And, and all of a sudden find ourselves just damaging our life, damaging our, the people in our lives by just by pursuing sin with no abandon. And so God's like saying, look, over here on this extreme is this super righteousness. Don't go there. Over here is super wickedness. Don't go there. You're, you're, you are wicked. You are sinful. And by the way, if anyone here is sitting there going, I, I don't think I'm wicked. I don't think I'm sinful. 
That thought right there is a simple wicked thought, so there you are, guilty by association. Because we all have sin. If we see ourselves as too righteous, then we're filled with pride, and we will not see our need for Christ. We will not see our need for forgiveness. And in that moment, we need to desperately understand our need for Christ in our life. We desperately understand God's love for us. But this is a dual warning. We don't want to lean into being wicked and saying, well, we'll shine it, man. I'm just going to be as bad as I can be. So let me ask you this. Which extreme do you lean into? Because we typically aren't balanced people. We typically are people of extremes. Do you tend to lean towards self-righteousness and try to be super righteous? Or do you tend to lean into super wickedness and go, you know what, well, I'm just going to, if I'm going to sin, I'm just going to sin it up. And what we're seeing the teacher saying here is like, both are bad. Don't, don't go either one. Just give it to God, pursue God. You know, while we're talking about this righteousness and sinfulness, he, he says some things here that, that we need to get a little messy with for a minute. A lot of people will dodge this, but we got to go there. He says basically this, I've seen good happen to evil and I've seen evil happen to good people, Right? In verse 15, he said, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. What's the point there? Well, he continues the same sentiment in chapter 8. In chapter 8, you look at verses 10 to 14, you see the same thing. He says, I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Basically saying, when we do bad and we don't receive some sort of consequence, then we're like, yes, and we just keep going down that path as far as we can until God allows a circumstance, an adversity, to help get us out of there. A U-turn. Hopefully we learn before that happens. He continues, though, verse 12. And though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Come on, let's be transparent. There's times when we go, what's the point of trying to pursue God? What's the point of trying to be good? Because we can find ourselves in the same position as this teacher going, sometimes you look at life and go, I don't get it. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. So what's the point? And what's so interesting is uh, we, we have come to believe, deeply rooted in our spirits, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people, Right? For every uh, action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. This, this, is, this is what we've been trained to think and understand, and we've applied it spiritually. But here's the thing. As Christians, uh, we, we look at that and we go, yeah, that sounds good. Here's the problem. Bad people getting bad things, good people getting good things, is actually an Eastern philosophy called karma, right? It's called karma. That if you're good, good will happen to you. If you're bad, bad will happen to you. That, that's karma. And what happens is followers of Christ, we go, well, we don't believe in karma, when we believe in the Bible, we don't believe in karma until you hear us talk. Because once you hear us talk, it starts to sound like this. Hey, man, that guy, he had it coming to him. Like all the things he's done, he had it coming to him because, you know, bad people get bad things. And then we see someone we know and love who loves Jesus, has had a great life, missionaries being persecuted, whatever, and we go, how, how could that happen to so-and-so that they're so sweet, they're so wonderful? You know what that sounds like? Karma. We said, well, no. When did that creep in? 
to our thing. This is just part of life under the sun. We live in this, uh, this brokenness where, you know, over here is perfect in creation when God made it. It got broke through sin. Over here, which is coming our way soon, is perfection when God restores everything. And we live in this moment now where, guess what? Like it or not, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And we just cry foul. But we, we, here's the thing. We don't want what's coming to us. Like, think about that for a second. Do we really want justice from God? Like, do we want what's coming to us? And for one, the teacher's going, forget karma, because he's already misproven it. What do you mean bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people? I've seen everything in life. I see plenty bad happen to good people. I've seen plenty good happen to bad people, so there goes karma, right? And we go, but, but do we really want justice from God? I'm thinking about my whole life, my 40-plus years. I'm going, I don't, all my, I don't know them all. The ones I can remember all my bad thoughts, bad actions, bad attitudes, bad choices. And if I'm going to stand before a holy God one day, do I want what's coming to me? No. Do you want what's coming to you? <laughs> no. So we're toast, right? Uh-uh. Go see lesson number two. God's work is constant. God's work is mysterious. And God's work is good. And he's brought redemption. We don't have to experience what's coming to us because of the cross because of Christ. This is what's so amazing, is that we, we don't have a leg to stand on and trying to be righteous. We don't want to go far and try to be super sinner. In this place, we go, we're broken, we're sinful, but we'll just keep coming to God in awe and in trust and just receive what he has, knowing that sometimes that means we're going to see what seems like injustice around us. And if we drill down into the gospel, we know that we'd all be in trouble if God gave us what we wanted. Instead, he gives us mercy. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us grace through the blood of Jesus. So we don't want to see ourselves sinful beyond saving because we won't turn to Christ because we feel like we're not valued enough and God loves you so much that he went to the cross. And we don't want to see ourselves so righteous that we don't need the cross because then we're standing on our own two feet and we've got no feet to stand on. And so we have to realize here, we can't be super righteous, we can't be super sinner. Where do we go? I thought about 1 Corinthians 1.30. This whole book talks about wisdom and righteousness and redemption. And in, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom. Our wisdom is Christ. From God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our righteousness is in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross and we place our faith in Christ, his, his righteousness is applied to us. This is what takes place on the cross. And so we need Christ to rescue us from being super righteous, and we need Christ to rescue us from being super wicked. But these are just, these are just three of the lessons. I mean, life's unpredictable, life's uncertain, but we've got this certain God, we've got this unchanging God who says, I've got a lot of lessons I want to teach you in my word. And these were just three of them. The sorrow is a better teacher than laughter, that his, God's work is constant and it's uh, mysterious, but it's good. And also, don't, don't find yourselves over here being super righteous and don't be over here being super uh, wicked because we need to find ourselves in a need for Christ. And so uh, these are important lessons. Now, uh, oftentimes what we like to provide in our times of teaching are resources to help you kind of dig deeper. And I've been thinking about these themes through Ecclesiastes going, we're talking about living life under the sun. We need to be in the presence of God. We need to dig into our relationship with God. Some of you might know about this little read. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's by a, a guy named Brother Lawrence. It was conversations and letters captured with this guy named Brother Lawrence who lived in the 1600s. And so this booklet is free online. 
You can go to our website. We made it easy for you. Just go to cvconline.org, and you can just get this thing and download it. You can get it on a Kindle for 99 cents or whatever. Uh, we had a few copies, but they went bye-bye after first service. So if you want a real book, you can get it online, uh, but it's free. You can download it for free. And why I selected this resource is because here's a guy who experienced hardship. He was in the 30 Years' War. He was, uh, he was injured. He, he was crippled and experienced chronic pain for the rest of his life. He resigned himself to a simplistic life of servitude where he found the joy of God in the simplest of things. And he was interviewed about it. It was all captured. It's just a really neat classic writing that I think will help us say, as we try to learn lessons under the sun, uh, here's, here's a guy that, that got it. And so I encourage you to look up the practice of the presence of God and look into that. Uh, one of the quotes from there, just to give you a flavor, says this, that we ought to give ourselves up to God with regard both to things temporal and spiritual, and seek our satisfaction only in the fulfilling of his will, whether he lead us by suffering or by consolation, for all would be equal to a soul truly resigned. Anyway, it's just, just deep and helpful uh, writing uh, to process. Well, as we wrap it up, I just shared a few lessons with you, but here's a few questions I have for you guys. Some questions I want you guys to process as we get ready to leave here today. What is one lesson that God has taught you or reminded you of today? Like, we just, we just, this is a drop in the bucket from today, from these two chapters, and really from the whole book. But as you heard today, what's one lesson that God's taught you or maybe he reminded you of today? This would be something I'd encourage you to write down and capture. Maybe you can talk about this after the service with the folks you're with, maybe around, you know, Mother's Day lunch or whatever. Uh, clicking on that answer, you would say this, what does that lesson teach you about the Lord? All the lessons are designed to teach us something about God. Ultimately, they, they all come back to the Lord. And the next question is, who are you sharing that lesson with this week? Like this week, who's someone you can share what lesson is on your heart and mind right now? Especially someone from the next generation. I think that's appropriate for Mother's Day and for the fact that this guy is teaching and giving us information from another generation. And so what's one lesson that God's taught you? What's a lesson that you can teach? Does that teach you about the Lord? And then who are you sharing that with this week? I encourage you guys to process that. Some of you, the lesson you're learning is your need for the Lord. Maybe you're in here today going, or you're watching online, you're going, I don't have that relationship with the Lord you keep mentioning. I I feel like I'm either way over here, I'm being super righteous, or I'm way over here, I'm super wicked, and, and I don't have the Lord. Well, we encourage you to get into a relationship with Christ. And uh, I'm going to lead you through a prayer here in a minute. And you can do that if you want. It's just an initiation to something much bigger, much greater. But you can give life to Christ. For the rest of us, let's be grateful for the lessons that our unchanging God gives us in a very unpredictable world. Also, let's pass them on to others because that's why he gives them to us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the lessons that you have taught us in your word. God, you've used all sorts of men and women from different eras, from different backgrounds to teach us much in your word. Father, thank you for what you've provided through Ecclesiastes and this teacher. Thank you that you allowed him to experience so much, so much good, so much bad, and that he can synthesize that down to some points that we can learn from. Lord, thank you for even just the little three that we looked at today. They're they're great lessons, Lord. I pray for all of us who are in that place of mourning right now, for whatever reason. Lord, let us look for you. Let us see and reflect on the changes that we need in our theology and how we think of you, also in our behavior and how we navigate life. Lord, help us to see your work. Let us see that your work is constant. It's fixed. It's, it's um, beneficial and it's good to us, Lord. It's mysterious. Help us to resign that, Lord, not to feel like we have to 
expect an answer from you, Lord, but just to, to yield to you. And Lord, also, I just pray, Lord, that those of us who find ourselves leaning toward being super righteous, that you convict us and let us see our desperate need for you. Those, those of us who are tilting toward being super sinful, super wicked, Lord, that you would show us the value and love you have for us so we'd come out of that place and cling to you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you can simply just say something like this. You say, Lord, I'm broken and lost. I need you. I need to follow you. I want to learn from you. I want you to be my teacher personally. So right now I confess my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose from the grave. I place my faith in you now. Father, thank you for today. I pray that uh, all of us leave here and that we're able to experience the joy, the adversity and prosperity both that you have for us and to learn from it. God, we take, uh, take these gifts we're about to give. We pray that you would receive them as an act of worship, that we're dependent on you, that we trust you, that we're grateful to you. Also, Lord, take them and multiply them for the work of your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. amen.